Trauma Therapist Podcast, Episode 28. Passion, dedication, and inspiration. Are you ready to become the best version of yourself? Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support, and it is 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. No more worrying about finding the right provider or scheduling appointments. Cerebral brings it all to you whenever and wherever you need it. To get started on your path towards better mental health, Cerebral is giving you, the Trauma Therapist Podcast listeners, 15% off your first month of online therapy, medication, or both. Get started by going to Cerebral.com slash podcast and use the code the Trauma Therapist. That's Cerebral, C-E-R-E-B-R-A-L.com slash podcast. And don't forget to use the code the Trauma Therapist to get 15% off your first month. Make 2024 your best year yet. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Please see site for details. If you're ready, are you tired of spending countless hours buried under mountains of progress notes or clinical notes? It's time to focus on what truly matters, which is providing exceptional care to your clients. Introducing Text Expander, your ultimate solution to help you streamline documentation and boost your productivity. I've been using Text Expander for years, and it's one of the tools I use every single day. If you're a therapist, if you're a coach, any content or text you use on a regular basis in your progress notes, for example, your name, address, or even longer forms, paragraphs of notes or sections of reports, you can create a shortcut for it. Text Expander automatically populates entire paragraphs of text, saving you valuable time and effort, and it allows you to get back to what truly matters your clients. Text Expander is offering the Trauma Therapist Podcast listeners 20% off when you go to textexpander.com slash trauma. That's textexpander.com slash trauma. To hear inspiring interviews with amazing trauma therapists, this is it. Right here, right now. With your host, Guy McPherson. All right, folks, before we get started today, I'm so excited to announce the launch of my trauma therapy coaching program. You know, several years ago, when I first started out in psychology, I knew I wanted to get involved with trauma therapy. I knew I was passionate about it, and yet there was a hesitancy. I didn't know what I was doing, and I was scared. And it wasn't until I went to this one particular workshop, and I got to see and work with seasoned trauma clinicians and how they engaged with each other, how they were interacting, and what they were doing, what they were saying, and they were very fundamental skills. This is what I'm offering in my coaching program. So if you're interested in embarking on a journey to become a trauma therapist, this is it. Head on over to westcoasttraumaproject.com, hit on the coaching tab, and let's get started. Welcome to the Trauma Therapist Podcast. My name is Guy McPherson, and this is the podcast where we interview master trauma therapists, as well as incredible individuals in the trauma field from all over the world to learn about what inspires them. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. 
I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Uh, the steps they've taken to become masters in their field. If you're a trauma therapist, if you're interested in trauma therapy, or if you're simply passionate about helping other people, this is it. Today, I'm so excited to introduce my guest, Rick Goodwin. Rick, are you ready to go? I'm ready to go. All right. Rick is the executive director of One in Six Canada, the National Knowledge Center on Male Sexual Trauma and Recovery. Rick's past work experience has been as a social worker, educator, and program manager. He conducts training on issues of male sexual victimization across Canada and the USA and facilitates a men's trauma treatment program for men through the Men's Project in Ottawa. Rick has co-authored the book Men in Healing, Theory, Research, and Practice with Male Survivors of Childhood Sexual Abuse. Rick is the inaugural recipient of the Attorney General's Award of Distinction for his work in developing and implementing innovative victim service programs in 2007. All right, Rick. So just a little bit about your background. Share with us before we start just something personal. You know, I know you're in Canada, what it's like for you up there, and then we'll get into uh, get into business here. Well, um, uh, today it's a Cloudy and cool day. We haven't had our first frost yet, but we're looking, uh, it's coming close. And uh, after doing a day of uh, paperwork, I've got a new program tonight at our homeless shelter. And we're very excited about this because it's a phase two program working with pretty uh, challenged uh, population, obviously. Uh, But it's the first time we will be doing this type of long-term work with guys at, at our partner agency. Nice. Okay. So uh, let's let's move in here to our first topic, which is the quote. You know, again, this podcast is about getting to know you uh, with the goal of inspiring other clinicians. The first thing we do here, start out with a quote, a mantra, something that has guided you, inspired you in, in your journey. So what do, you, what do you have for us? Well, there was not much uh, question on, on this one, Guy. It was uh, my favorite quote is Viktor Frankl. Uh, what is to give light must endure burning. And um, I mean, I, I think there's reflection of this to going through the therapeutic process oneself, but I take a lot of inspiration from this in doing the work. Um, hell, there's lots of easier work out there, I'm sure, than uh, doing trauma work uh, for a stretch. And yet um, I think that notion of lightness and um, uh, burning uh, allows, I think, allows us, allows me as a practitioner to feel the pain of doing the work, but also knowing that there's incredible gifts involved in this in this work itself. And uh, so we need to appreciate both. Yeah, I love that quote. I mean, I love Viktor Frankl too, and we'll link him up in the show notes page at westcoasttraumaproject.com. But, and I am not familiar with that quote, but again, I love it. When, when did that quote kind of resonate for you? You said it was an easy pick for you. When did that 
kind of um, begin to resonate with you, that quote? Oh, good question. I, um, I remember reading uh, Viktor Frankl's work um, two decades ago, three decades ago in my formative years and, and becoming a therapist, for sure. I think I was reading his work both as a bit of personal reflection in my own work, my own personal journey, uh, but it, it again gave me strength in terms of taking on this work. And I'm a su- subscriber to an American magazine called The Sun a literary magazine and this is a quote that they have in their masthead so every month i am refreshed uh by seeing this quote again in that publication great yeah i and i am familiar with the magazine as well i'll link that one up too that's it that's a great magazine beautiful thanks, thanks for sharing that all right so let's move on here this is about highlighting your journey to becoming really a master therapist in this field you know people enter into this field for a variety of reasons you know i speak on this topic every day when I do this podcast. And uh, I was drawn into this in part because of my brother who came back from the special forces with PTSD and just did not know how to engage him, you know, and, but I did everything the wrong way. And, you know, as we were talking a little bit before we started recording here about this project, uh, and this is what I wanted to do is to kind of to give back. So Rick, tell us a story, break it down for us. What got you into this specialization of trauma? Well, I was always interested in men's work coming out of my master's degree in the mid-80s. Uh, one of my internships led to Ottawa's uh, program to work with abusive men. So um, for the first number of years, I worked with you know men who were convicted of assault against their partners. And while that certainly would be part of men's work, um, I became very disenchanted with that process, with uh, being uh, part of the criminal justice system, and basically utilizing, uh, at that time, the Duluth model was certainly in vogue. And um, I think it just became so sensitive that we are, in, in, we are reshaming men um, and intervening around issues of domestic violence. So I stepped out of that work Got into college teaching, both at the at an Aboriginal as well as mainstream college uh, network up here in Canada, and then came back to uh, Ottawa. I was up in uh, northern Ontario for a while. Anyways, I, I reconnected with a friend uh, who's also a social worker. We commiserated too many times about the lack of services in Ottawa, and um, ended up thinking we could start up a conversation with the YMCA about maybe running an evening or two, you know, a group or two a week uh, as a community service project with the Y. Um, the Y wanted evidence of this gap in services. And at that time, I had a crew of students do a needs assessment and environmental scan on men's services in Ottawa. They saw the report, they heard the presentation, and then, and then they said, we're on to something, and granted us a room um, here at the downtown Y. Larry and I both threw in a thousand bucks to buy some business cards and to get a phone line in operation. And that's what we did to begin uh, starting the men's project, uh, the agency. And um, as, uh, as it's been said by Larry's uh, partner at the time, uh, the men's project was a hobby gone bad. Um, what we thought was going to be an evening or two of volunteer work at the Y, just sitting down in circles with men, um, led to 
unprecedented demand for service from the get-go. And we had a first funding from the provincial government about a year and a half into it. So the job quickly went from volunteer job to a full-time job for me. And uh, that's how it's been for the last 17 years. Okay. So you've given us uh, kind of a nice chronology there, you know, starting out in the criminal justice system. Um, you mentioned the Duluth model and you got into interpartner violence, um, college teaching. What, Rick, what was it or is it about trauma that got you in, would you say, to, the, to this uh, specialty? Well, I, you know, one of my key aha moments came from when I was run, living in northern Ontario, running a program for abusive men. I was teaching full-time at the college, but being a good social worker, I was still involved in community services. And there was an older fellow in the program. And this older fellow walked with a profound limp. And uh, normally I would not be socializing with the guys at break, but that week I did. Not too sure, maybe my colleague was away that week. Um, and I asked him what the story was with his limp. And he told me um, a story about the wand, which was, uh, you know, that part of the vacuum cleaner, those pipes uh, that you snap together for, with a vacuum cleaner. And his uh, mother uh, hit him when he was a child, broke two of his vertebrae, and he has walked with a limp ever since. And what struck me is there I was uh, providing this program using Duluth principles and both the Ontario government guidelines for these programs is you don't engage in men's past victimization because it provides men for rationalization or minimization of their violence. And it just struck me that this is integral to this man's story, that why am I engaging with him in a program that won't allow me to make that a central P of insight and change. So that was an aha movement, a moment for me to shift away from uh, engaging with men. Um, yeah, I just wanted to become trauma-informed. I wanted to ensure that I wasn't, I was doing justice with my clients and I certainly didn't believe I was doing that uh, in that conventional way of working with male offenders. Yeah, beautiful. I mean, that that uh, that story, and thank you so much for sharing that, that's the kind of uh, story that really breaks it down and allows us to see, you know, what's motivating you, how you got into this field, and so powerful. I mean, just that image of the vacuum cleaner and this guy, you know, with a limp, and you're, you just happen to be... Uh, kind of, kind of, in a sense, shifting your own protocol during a meeting once, and, and start interacting with, um, you know, men there, and you find this out, and that kind of changes your uh, uh, tra trajectory in a sense. So, really appreciate you sharing that. So, we, you know, we talked a little bit about your journey, what what led you here into this field. Let's talk about an early clinical error. You know, tell us a story again, as you as you did so beautifully. Pre previously here, about an error you made, uh, maybe when you were just starting out, maybe recently, but something that's really shifted, influenced, and informed your work, something you learned from that. Um, boy, uh, clinical errors, uh, there's been a lot, and uh, I am so thankful for good clinical supervision. 
to uh, as a way to um, challenge me, support me, educate me in uh, refining my practice. Um, oh, I can think of lots of things. From the early days in doing trauma work, we just thought that having men sitting in a circle on this issue would be the ticket. And I think it was for many of the men, but we were we were not terribly uh, trauma informed when we started up these services. So we didn't move, we didn't have a phased program for the first five years of our existence. So if you think about that, knowing that trauma recovery, with childhood trauma recovery, is a long-term process, I don't know how you can speed it up. Um, we would have groups, uh, you know, with guys in there for a good year, and then we would bring in someone fresh from assessment. And even though it's a circle of men, obviously um, the the realm the, the the realm of difference between a fellow who's well on his recovery journey, perhaps you know, going to be looking at graduating from his recovery journey, sitting beside someone who is just freaking out because he's never been in a men's circle, let alone hearing guys talk as freely and as emotionally based as as the men were. It was like working with guys from you know totally different cultures, if not planets. So I think we we did make a lot of uh, strategic errors uh, in not finding, uh, not coming to the awareness of phased programming, which I think is so essential now. Um, I mean that's a, that's certainly a big mistake that comes to mind. I think the notion of uh, going back to the intersection between men's victimization and men's Current violence is horribly problematic, and I certainly have made mistakes. Um, maybe in, more in my initial days of leaning heavier on my focus on ending the, the violence. At the same time, kind of driving the man away from service because of inherent shame in the process, uh, uh, dismissal of his subjectivity of what's going on. Um, and I think now, you know, we're we're an interesting position uh, in our in our evolution of services, where we now we get into challenges with other agencies. Who, you know, if a fellow's got an addiction matter, their strategy is saying, you know, focus on your addiction, don't deal with the trauma piece um, at that time. And you know, we're we're coming back at them and saying. You know, one is not necessarily more important than the other, and you can't think of recovery on one in absence of the other. So I think it's taken us a while to get to this position of clarity around men and addictions issues, much like the clarity I think we now have about men who are survivors of abuse and who have issues with rage and violence. Okay. So I think you've kind of given us... Um you know, two issues here, thankfully. Uh, the first of which was, uh, you know, talking about having uh, individuals who are in different stages of their recovery or rehabilitation or treatment, if you will, in the same program and the, uh, you know, difficulties and complexities that that uh, kind of incurs in treatment. And then the second thing you talked about, and I kind of want to draw the draw the um, the lens on this one and ask you to kind of elaborate. You talked about men's victimization in relation to their current violence. Kind of tease that out. What, what are you talking about specifically? And if you can, kind of uh, maybe give us a story to, to, 
you know, flush that out a bit? Sure. Um, so just to say that in, in, in our phase programming model, our first phase of group intervention with men here is a 10-session, highly structured, highly psychoeducational model of teaching safety, you know, safety, emotional safety, physical safety, internal safety, external safety, how to handle flashbacks, what um, we do some critical examination of masculinity to see how it can support us in our recovery, but also be a hindrance. Uh, so highly, you know, some guys refer to it as a course. In that course, in that phase one programming, we talk about shame um, and define it, the distinction between guilt and shame. And then we talk about three shame pathways uh, for the men. Like what happens to the shame, this possibly difficult emotion um, that suggests one is bad. We The three shame pathways we talk about are that some men carry that through in rage and violence. Some men carry that through in alcohol and drug abuse. And some men carry that forward in problematic sexual behaviors. So this shame, this first shame pathway around the connections between shame and rage and violence suggests that as shame-prone men, uh, which we consider all clients of our upper service, um, this is a continuous experience um, of shame. It's not episodic necessarily. And an area where they can where their male socialization dovetails with their post-traumatic um, emotional dysregulation, to call it, um, is in how they manage issues of frustration um, and tension in their, in their intimate relationships. You know, where here we see the reenactment of their um, insecure attachment that they grew up with, so that's another assumption we make of, of the fellows and how they carry it forward in the relationship. So if someone is um, more intrusive in their post-trauma characteristics, that merged with um, like the conventions of masculinity would suggest that a percentage of men, not all male survivors, have issues of, of rage. So here we find in a relationship um, that any situation of conflict or tension between the fellow and his partner um, instills a greater awareness, uh, a greater uh, sense of shame. Uh, these men do not handle conflict well. Um, and the shame builds. And we know shame is the most, the heaviest of all emotions. And, um, of course, we try to hide from shame so we don't terribly... Uh, as people, we don't really embrace this emotion. Uh, we tend to duck it. But the shame builds and the shame builds and the shame builds. And then it reaches a point uh, on which we call it a shame-free holiday, where the men's sense of uh, shame, that sense of being bad, that essential badness, um, is transferred then onto the partner at that critical moment. Um, you know, if we looked at the the notion of the cycle of violence theory, you know, at that critical incidence of, of, of violence or rage, all that badness is then transferred onto the partner. And he or she is a, now the bad one. And at that moment in time, the fellow with this problem believes inherently he is in the right to do, to allow him to do what he's, what he does, 
you know, again, it could be verbal, it could be physical. Uh, so this notion of shame rage spiral uh, really is a core formulation for us in intervening with violent prone men uh, because we see the high correlation of assaultive men who have witnessed childhood violence, who have been beaten as children, uh, possibly being sexually abused as well. We know that population is highly representative in men who are convicted of assault. So, I mean, this is not our own creation. Uh, Helen Block Lewis certainly was the, the theorist who helped uh, lead um, our understanding of this, of this intervention, of this model of understanding. And, um, and so it's, it's a critical piece in phase one programming, and we will explore this um, on a regular basis um, based on what the men present in phase two. Great, great. Okay, thanks for that elaboration. I really appreciate it. Um, all right, now we get to one of my favorite questions, which is why? You know, we talked about some of the challenges, uh, a couple of your early mistakes here. I also believe it's important that we know why we're doing something because the answer to that really kind of drives us and keeps us going on a day-to-day basis in our lives, in our work. So, Rick, break it down for us. What's your why? What keeps you going on a day-to-day basis in this field? Boy, that's a good question and a tough question because sometimes I am shaky within my resolve, even though I've been doing this work um, close to 20 years. Um, I think it's one thing to do trauma therapy and, you know, bless those folks who do it and do it well. Um, and it's another issue to try to um, manage a small charity. Uh, we're a nonprofit organization. Um, we dedicate many of our services to low-income men. Our funding, um, uh, in a few words, uh, I can say sucks in, in terms of uh, keeping us, keeping the ship afloat. Um, and it's not a topic that really is out there for charitable dollars. Um, the joke is often made about, you know, if we could put, uh, I don't know, if we could put puppy dogs on our business cards or, you know, evoke images of children, there would be a greater chance we could get uh, charitable donations and the notions of, uh, of men um, who are in need of help. Um, so some days are, look better to me than others. Um, in terms of what keeps me here, though, I know I have uh, lived experience of sexual abuse when I was a kid. Um, it doesn't formulate much in my day-to-day experience, um, but I know that no doubt brought me to this field and brought me to this field in a big way. Um, I think with my colleague who helped start up the agency many years ago, we had a shared notion of, um, oh, you know, we had our own perspectives of what we could consider the men's movement or what would be a constructive use of masculine expression in our communities. So I think some of my social work orientation um, led as well to the, to the initiative. And, and I think as I've gotten more years under my belt, this is truly, um, I mean, it's, a, it's an emerging sector. It's an emerging sector in trauma work. It's an emerging sector in social services health services, but it's also a, um, a movement as well. And I know people, not just here in Ottawa, but I've got colleagues across the country. I have close American colleagues 
we have a partnership with uh, an American agency, One and Six Inc., that we're very grateful for. We also have a partnership with an Australian organization, Living Well. Um, brilliant people involved in brilliant agencies. So we, you know, it helps break the isolation, allows for some camaraderie, um, and we have an agreement to share our respective initiatives or products or services between the three countries. So I'm, I'm again, blessed with um, people of like mind, um, people who give me strength, and um, a real shared vision about how, how the world could be different. Awesome. And I will uh, include those links again in the show notes page at westcoasttraumaproject.com. That's, uh, correct me if I'm wrong here, Rick, in the United States, it's One in Six, Inc. And in Australia, it's Living Well. Yes. Awesome. Okay. So, you know, many of our listeners are just getting into trauma therapy. Uh, some have experience as therapists, but don't have experience from working with uh, victims of trauma. You've been doing this for a while now. What advice would you have for individuals who are maybe just beginning to get into this field or want to get into this field, you know, curious about the field of trauma? What would you say to them? Um, my first thought would be clinical supervision, clinical supervision, and clinical supervision. Okay. Um, we've been gifted by... Um, by two supervisors in particular over the years where I have gone with them for the most complex of cases. I've gone with them feeling bereft of spirit doing the work and everything in between those two. And um, that's where I have had the greatest learning, uh, the greatest support. And um, yeah, I mean, it, it's it's beyond emotional first aid. You know, it's 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 a mass unit for therapists. Good clinical supervision is unfortunately more of a rarity, I think, in social services at least. Um, I know a lot of independent practitioners do not have that, and that's worrisome um, because there's a cost to this work. There's no doubt about that. Um, when our supervisor comes into the room, even though I'm the executive director, we put that person on the, on a pedestal in that sense that they have the clinical direction. And I need that in my role, just like any therapist. Um, rarely would I ever think otherwise of how to proceed uh, in a case. And, and, and again, it's a way of clearing oneself of all the complexity and baggage, I think, associated with this work. Um, I think clinical supervision should not be done in-house. It shouldn't be your boss doing it because that's too many mixed, you know, too many different hats there. So it's always been an outside consultant that we bring in for this work. And I think that's a great arrangement uh, for supervision as well. Supervision can lead me to critical readings, can lead me to want to explore issues in conferences, and that's all good. Um, but first and foremost, it would be supervision to me. Okay, I, I really appreciate that. Um, and I love the distinction you made of you know not having it done in-house. I think that is uh, extremely um, uh, kind of insightful and uh, just right on the money there. I think that's great advice. So can you recommend two go-to books um, you know, for our listeners, you know, early on you mentioned Viktor Frankl. He's going to be linked up in the show notes page. But uh, any two books that have, again, guided you, have had a major impact on the work you do? Um, 
Yeah, the, the, first, the first one certainly would be a classic I have reread. Um, it's by Ram Das and Paul Gorman called How Can I Help? And it's a very simple, very, uh, it's just a lovely digestible book to read, uh, getting at the core of the helping relationship, exploring the notion of witnessing, exploring the notion of suffering. Um, and while it's not truly a clinical book in any respect, um, it would be my first book by far. When I taught college and taught social work in college, this would be the, the essential reading material for any course on ethics uh, of practice. Um, the second book, because it's played a large role in our formulation of services, is Judith Herman's Trauma and Recovery. And I know that's a very popular book out there. Um, it's the first time I believe in her writing where she you know, looks at experiences of men, not just women, and experiences cross-culturally in terms of trauma recovery. Um, so in that sense, it was truly groundbreaking when it came out, um, I, I would assume, in the early 90s. It, um, I reread it about two or three years ago just to refresh myself, and I was uh, taken back that even though she was speaking of women's and men's experiences, still she uses more of a women-centered lens to the issues, um, and not suggesting she should otherwise, but as I'm deeper and deeper in focusing my practice just on working with men. Um, we're always thirsty for more male-centered approaches to therapy, um, whether that be conceptual approaches, whether that be clinical uh, technique, uh, how to work with guys in a way that truly speaks to men's reality, speaks to men's subjectivity. Um, so I think we, all, of course, have to go beyond Herman to, to get that. Um, Maybe that book is still yet to be written out there, but uh, more and more this notion of male-centered therapy is what we believe is a ticket for developing community services. Okay, so uh, two books there, uh, How Can I Help by Ram Das and Paul Gorman, and uh, Trauma and Recovery by Judith Herman. Both, again, will be linked up in the show notes page at westcoasttraumaproject.com. Rick, what um, do you have going on that you want to share? You know, uh, the Men's Project, obviously, and uh, all your links will be linked up in the show notes page. Um, anything, any final words? Well, there's, I think there's lots of hope and there's lots of new initiative in seeing men, <clears throat> seeing men through a trauma lens. If we think of the one in six number, which is a conservative number, um, and that, of course, doesn't focus on men who mean physically abuse as children, which um, that number could be in addition to the one in six number. I think we've got this amazing lens to rethink a lot of social problems um, that involve men, men's behavior. Why is it that, you know, 90% of people in prison are men? Um, and, and if we understand that, if we can use that lens of understanding, I think it allows for great hope and formulating interventions and services um, and prevention work so uh, so we can speak to the needs of boys. So, uh, um, as much as the funding is a challenge, as much as the work may be difficult, um, more and more I sense from others a real openness to taking on this work for from you know, community sexual assault centers that would exclusively focus on women now saying, how can we serve men 
and serve men well in our community. Um, Aboriginal services as well, seeing work done internationally, not just in first world countries, but now in, in, in you know, initiatives in Uganda and, um, and there's initiative in Cambodia. I mean, it's just, you know, that, that keeps me strong. That's, that's hopeful. And, you know, we got to keep our eyes on that prize. Nice. Rick, I mean, I love what you're doing. I love your dedication and your persistence and your passion. You know, again, this is why I'm doing this podcast. I want to thank you so much and love to keep in touch. Um, and we'll, we'll talk soon. Thank you, Guy. Enjoyed it. All right, folks, I want to say thank you so much for listening to the podcast. What I want to do right now is invite you to contact me at guy at westcoasttraumaproject.com. I'd love to hear from you. I want to invite you to share two things with me. One, why are you doing this? Why are you in this field? And that's my favorite question I ask every master trauma therapist on the podcast. Number two, what are you struggling with? What are your sticky points? I have so many myself, but I'd love to hear from you. Guy at West Coast Trauma Project.com. Thanks so much.